fighting a long time. We have all lost so very much. So many loved ones gone. But you are not alone. There are pockets of resistance all around the planet. We are at the brink. You have no idea how important you are. If you're listening to this, you are the resistance. Ave Hey, welcome everybody back. Steve Cunningham, Sons of Delian, with Dr. Alan Finister once again on a continual series on the councils of the church. Today we're doing the Council of Florence. So, Doctor, welcome back. Uh, you were on vacation for a little bit. We gave you a little break on using that gigantic brain of yours, but not 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 not, not the heads. So that wasn't a thing. Just you know, ma massive smarts. How about that? Uh, <laughs> Maricopa, um, man. <laughs> no, 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 no. I was, didn't think you were insulting my cranium side. I, just... I, I got a huge noggin. I wasn't talking about you. <laughs> yeah, the Council of Florence. Um, so uh, it's the 17th Ecumenical Council. It's, uh, I like to point out to people, it's the most ecumenical, ecumenical council since <laughs> the Council of Nicaea. Um, in fact, it's the most, yeah, that's it. They're the because uh, every single church derived from the apostles was represented in some way at that council and they were all reconciled in one way or another it didn't it didn't last perfectly at all but um there are still churches which are in communion with rome uh, effectively because of the council of florence that wouldn't otherwise have been and for a brief moment it seems as if everybody was back um so it's quite a, quite a big deal council of florence and um, it's uh, they um, uh, yeah so they how to so if you remember last time um, we were uh, we left off with the Council of Constance um, uh, ending in fourteen uh, eighteen and um, uh, there was a decree of the Council of of Constance uh, which was designed to sort of keep the popes under the control of the councils because during the Great Western Schism. When there were two and then three popes, this movement of conciliarism built up uh, that believed that the councils were superior to the popes, and um, and there was a lot of this uh, idea floating around the acts of the Council of Constance. And uh, again, if you remember last time, we were discussing how there's this ambiguity about when was it really a council because it was originally summoned by this uh, fake Pope John Twenty Third. And um, and when and even when it was really a council, which parts of it were actually confirmed by the Pope who came afterwards, uh, Martin V. But one decree which was disciplinary and therefore ultimately didn't bind the Pope, um, but the Pope himself, uh, because considerism was so so widespread, it wasn't safe for the popes to just say, yeah, we're just cancelling that because it doesn't bind us because it's disciplinary and we have, you know, supreme legislative power in the church, so we can just cancel it. That was one of the things that was, you know, heavily contested by conciliarism. And the position of the popes was so weak that it would have been dangerous for them to just say, uh, yeah, no, we're just setting it aside. So, so they really had to follow it for political reasons. 
And this is a decree called Frequens, um, uh, which, as the name suggests, is uh, all about how, how well, a good thing it is to have ecumenical councils frequently. And uh, that decree was passed on the 9th of October, 1417. And uh, it required that the popes hold, uh, that they decree where the next council was going to be uh, and what date it was going to be with the agreement of the council that was sitting before the end of the current council. So it's to kind of keep them under control, you see. They're, they're not allowed to go home until they finish doing their lines, or in this case, finished, um, uh, finished um, a, a promise to hold another council and set a date and a place for it. And uh, the decree required that the Pope uh, establish a council in five years from the end of Constance, and then seven years from the end of that council, and then ten year, and then every ten years forever thereafter. Now, as I say, that doesn't really bind the Pope, but they believed that it did, mm. and it was too dangerous for him to just behave as if he didn't care about it. <laughs> so, um, so Martin V, the Pope that was uh, agreed upon at the Council of Constance, he uh, he needed to call a council five years later, so he called it at Pavia in 1423. Um, but very shortly thereafter, a uh, plague broke out, um, and so he had to move it to Siena. So this was a, a valid ecumenical council um, that nobody really remembers. You know, it's like the fifth beetle or something. Um, <laughs> and uh, this, um, so, uh, uh, I mean, there have been a number of these councils called over the years that have, you know, not many people turned up and it never really did anything and it had to be dissolved. And so, uh, although... The, the Council of Siena really did do a number of things, but uh, the, the, its, its actions were never confirmed by the popes afterwards, and it was dissolved relatively soon, um, I suppose because they thought that the things that it done would be confirmed, which they weren't, and, they, 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 and before it was dissolved, Martin V summoned another one uh, in accordance with the decree frequens in, agree, uh, in agreement as to place and time with this Council of Siena. Mm-hmm. So, so it fell through the cracks. It, it never, never became a, a proper ecumenical council. So it was a valid council while it was sitting, but it wasn't. Uh, it was never confirmed. Um, it's act. It's 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 decrees were never confirmed. Um, but they did uh, meet um, in seven years' time, as as had been agreed at the end of the council. Now, the um, the uh, bishops and the pope agreed that the council should meet at Basel in Switzerland. Um, and this was because it's kind of, you know, for the same reason international institutions have often been in Switzerland. The League of Nations um, uh, was, uh, what it's worth, uh, was um, originally established in Geneva. And um, so uh, so they, they wanted it because it's outside the control of the emperor and of the king of France and of the various other great powers. But it's also outside of the control of the pope. It's not in Italy. So that was the idea of having it in Basel. Um, no doubt why also, of course, Geneva became the centre of global global Calvinism um, uh, in the time of the Reformation. Um, so, uh, so it was due to meet um, in 1431, and it, it was summoned and it did meet, and it, it was the last act of uh, Pope Martin V to get it together, and Martin V died in 1431. Okay, so... Um, that's the sort of conciliarist background. And so to start with, the Council of Florence is the Council of Basel. Um, and in fact, officially, it's uh, if you want to be really scrupulous, it's the Council of Basel, Ferrara, Florence, Lateran. 
is, is <laughs> the fault because it moved around an awful lot. Um, uh, and, and sometimes you'll see it listed as 1431 to 1449. And the, the reason for that is that in the end, it splits off into two rival councils, a conciliarist council and a council which is loyal to the Pope. And the conciliarist council lasts until 1449. But in fact, the real ecumenical council, the one of Basel, Ferrara, Florence, Lateran, uh, that ends in 1445. So that's Good grief. <laughs> yeah. So that's the proper dates of um, of the Council of Florence of, of 1431 to 1445. So that, that's what's going on on the Western side. The whole argument is all about, about the conciliarism and and having a kind of quasi-parliamentary system of councils and then on the eastern side something else is going on so uh, the um, Byzantines had reconquered Constantinople from the Latin Empire uh, which had been set up by the Venetians and the Fourth Crusaders after they sacked Constantinople in 1204 and then uh, uh, slightly less than 60 years later the uh, Byzantines get it back and uh, we talked about all that around the Second Council of Lyon. And, uh, and you remember the Second Council of Lyon, um, there was an attempted reunion. And uh, there were a number of problems with the attempted reunion. One was that it was very much imperially driven. It was the Emperor um, Michael IV, Paleologos, uh, who, um, who wanted the reunion in order to stop Charles of Anjou, who'd taken over as King of Sicily from attempting to reconquer Constantinople. Um, and uh, he, um, and he agreed to everything in this Rex Motrum way that we spoke about. Um, and, um, but, he, uh, but he didn't really carry the bishops uh, and the people very much with him. Now, how far it might have succeeded is difficult to tell because, um, because uh, Pope, uh, the, um, the, uh, um, Michael IV was excommunicated by the Pope uh, completely gratuitously a number of years later in order to please Charles of Anjou. So it was completely outrageous, one of the most wicked things ever done by a Pope. So he ended this union uh, in order to please a temporal ruler. Um, and then Charles of Anjou was knocked out of consideration because of the great revolt against him known as the Sicilian Vespers. But the, res the result was that, Pope, that um, the Emperor Michael IV died, uh, sorry, Michael VIII, excuse me, died um, uh, excommunicate both by the Holy See and by his own bishops in Byzantium who had rejected the Union. He was buried in unconsecrated ground and succeeded by his son Andronicus II. And Andronicus II was violently opposed to the Union. And if you remember, Michael VIII wasn't a very nice man and he, he managed to secure his position as emperor by blinding the little boy who was the rightful um, uh, to the successor empire of Nicaea and one of the first things Andronicus II did was go and find this now old man who'd been blind since he was about 11 or something um, and I think it was on his birthday if I remember rightly that he was blinded which was also Christmas Day so it means real villain stuff um, <laughs> so perhaps it's good that Michael VIII didn't end the Great Schism because we would be forever associated with this slightly nasty character but anyway um, uh, so Andronicus II went to go and beg the forgiveness of the now blind old man who had been blinded by his father all those years ago and uh, who was a monk by this point Anyway, Andronicus II very vigorously repudiated uh, the reunion, and uh, but but so so as a result, Byzantium was in schism again, all the way up until the Council of Florence. 
so um but in the meantime something else had happened um so when the uh when the byzantines recaptured constantinople the uh the religious orders that had been there while the latin empire was in existence they didn't just leave um they some they moved uh, but they but they moved to this town uh, that's just on the other side of the golden horn the golden horn is this is this natural harbor which um is very difficult to gain access to uh, which forms the side of constantinople um and on the other side of that harbor is is this galetta this town called galetta and and there's a tower there uh, and and that tower guards a special position which uh, which from which a chain uh, it goes across this inlet, the Golden Horn, so that you can have an entire fleet in there, huh. which can then sail out and, and do the emperor's bidding. Um, uh, but no one can sail in because the chain stops them. And uh, and this town is built up around this the fortified other end of this chain. And and uh, the Dominicans uh, had their house in that town, and uh, they stayed there even after the fall of the Latin Empire. And uh, the the sort of revived Byzantine Empire was so um, was was you know very weak compared to what it had been beforehand. It had certainly been on the decline before the sack of Constantinople, but but it was it was uh, much weaker still um, after it was put together again. And in some ways, people say that uh, some historians have suggested that the Byzantine successor states might have been more sustainable if they hadn't got Constantinople back, because although Constantinople is the great uh, sort of ace in the ace in the in the deck uh, for um, uh, for the Byzantines because they're able to um, uh, you know it, it's very difficult for it to fall. Um, uh, nevertheless, everything kind of soaks everything in. You know, it's like the way people view Washington D.C. and U.S. politics. You know, uh, every, everything inside the walls of Theodosius, as opposed to the Beltway, um, uh, becomes sort of uh, you know the, the focus of everything and defending and preserving that city takes priority over everything else and so building up an actually defensible territory becomes less important uh so so in the end it becomes a weird kind of drain on the survivability of, of the byzantine uh commonwealth but there we are um so uh, it's constantly shrinking they need the help of despite the fact that they despise them and dislike them they need the help of the great italian maritime city states um in order to and they in order to gain help from them they they give them concessions uh, to this these this and that rights in constantinople over the trade and and customs and, and rights in the port and uh, so one of the so the genoese and the venetians particularly are are um, given various privileges for which they are resented, but there we are. And uh, but anyway, so the Dominicans carry on in Galetta in this environment, and the Byzantines up until the siege of 1204. One of the problems with ending the schism was that they were very contemptuous of the Latins, and it had for many, many, many hundreds of years been not unreasonable that they were contemptuous of the Latins because the West had been very barbaric and, you know, it was Germanic barbarians taking over things, illiterate elites and all this kind of stuff. And they thought that all this intellectually worthwhile stuff was happening in Byzantium. There's no point even bothering about what's going on over there. And um, so the, the, the fact that the West had pulled ahead and become the center of Western, the West, I mean, the Latin West had become the center of Western civilization more generally, um, had sort of passed them by in many ways. And some people had sort of clock that this was happening. So, for example, the Emperor, Emperor Manuel I um, Comnenus, uh, who had who'd, who'd begun to try and sort of 
roping the Crusader states into the Byzantine sphere of influence and had even dreamed of going and, and campaigning in Italy and one day being crowned emperor by the Pope and, and, and ending the, the, the sort of division of lay leadership in, in Christendom. It was, it, was a, it was a dream, but the fact that he even had the dream showed that he understood a bit more what was going on. But with the capture of Byzantium in 1204, um, uh, the, the Byzantines had Western power and cultural development rubbed, rubbed in their face. Now, they weren't very pleased about that, but it did mean that they began to sort of understand a little bit more that the, the Latin West was something that they had to reckon with and wasn't just these pathetic, contemptible barbarians who were militarily significant because they were, you know, because they were particularly savage, not because there was anything significant or interesting about them. Now they kind of realised more that this was happening. And of course, one of the earliest stages in that process was uh, this uh, patriarch, John Beckus, who was the patriarch during the, the, the Union of, of Lyon II. Um, and he'd been convinced by going back and looking at the fathers that in fact the Latins were right about the filioque. Now, but, but that was a very early stage. Um, what began to happen, and of course Beckus was ended up living out his life in prison after the Union of Lyon was repudiated. But um, what happened with the Dominicans is that they began to translate the works of the Latin fathers and doctors into Greek so that they really could actually read them uh, in the East. And uh, so, so th some things by Anselm, a lot of things by Augustine, and particularly stuff by St. Thomas started being translated into, Lat into Greek from the Latin. And, um, and so the, uh, the Byzantines began to realize that there was this titanic intellectual tradition in the Latin West that they really hadn't known about. So although Augustine is venerated as a saint in the Byzantine liturgy, his writings were almost unknown in, in the Byzantine East until the very late 13th century and then the 14th century. Really? Um, yeah, absolutely. They, they just didn't know about him. They knew he was a saintly written stuff, he yeah. was a father of the church, but they, they didn't, that's it. They, they didn't really know what he'd done. <laughs> it wasn't until this period that they started reading his stuff. Hmm. And so this this caused a kind of two reactions. Well, three reactions. What the first reaction was kind of wow, oh gosh. And they started reading through. And the funny thing was, St. Thomas had an even more towering position in Byzantium in this period than he did in the West. So in the West, these rivalries between different religious orders that we've spoken about before, they eclipsed the significance of St. Thomas because they're thinking like, well, he may be a great guy, but you know, we hate him because you know he's not on our team. You know, it's like, you know, I might think warm feelings about Beckham's footballing skills, but he plays for Manchester United and I hate them. So consequently, I just feel revulsion every time his name is mentioned or something. This might um, be sad, but I was thinking West Side, East Side rap, you know, <laughs> Tupac. <laughs> Your analogy. But the, the um, so, um, so, so, so you ended up with this kind of uh, um, significant group of Byzantine Thomists. So, so it becomes a really big deal in Byzantium in that period. Now, but some of those, some of those, and this, this divides into two groups, because some of those people are like, well, he's really great, but we still hate the Latins and we're not going to agree to reunion. And so you get a, a, a really interesting group of people who basically, they really are signed up to St. Thomas's stuff, but except the filioque and the papal primacy, they don't like it. So, so, they're, so, so they try and excise that from, from the rest of St. Thomas's thought. Um, and uh, so strangely, in fact, the, 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 the real... Uh, in some ways, the founder of, of, of the Eastern Orthodox Church, as it now is, who's the guy who the Turks appoint as the Patriarch of Constantinople after Constantinople falls 
1453, Gennadius Scholarios. Um, he's actually a, a great scholar of an admirer of St. Thomas, but he just, uh, he's not willing to, he's not willing to go to the, um, to, he's not willing to accept Filioque and the papal primacy. So uh, in addition to Gennadius Scholarios, the, the ones who don't accept the, uh, all of St. Thomas's arguments, there's this big group of Byzantine Thomists who do accept the whole of what St. Thomas is saying. And one of the most prominent people among them is a guy called Demetrius Cadones, who's the prime minister of the Byzantine Empire. And he's the prime minister of the Byzantine Empire under, 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 under three different emperors. Um, <clears throat> John VI Cantacuzene, and then uh, who, John V Paleologos, who confusingly comes after John VI. There was a, a civil war, which it would take much too long to explain. Um, John V had been had sort of acceded to the throne as a kid, um, and then John VI had ended up co-reigning with him, uh, but then there was a civil war and he took over effectively, and then John V won the civil war. So effectively, in terms of the actual reign, John V comes after John VI. And then uh, Manuel II Paleologos, um, who he is also uh, prime minister under. Now, uh, Cantacuzene, uh, John VI, uh, while um, Demetrius Codones was serving him, he asks Codones to learn Latin for diplomatic purposes. And um, so, and also because, I mean, this isn't just secular diplomatic purposes, because um, whether or not Byzantium is going to reunite with Rome is a big deal diplomatically as well. And that makes it complicated because it's not always clear when different, I mean, it's probably clear enough in retrospect, but at the time for the popes, it wasn't always clear which emperors were genuinely seeking to reunite with the West and, um, and which ones were just trying to run down the clock to make sure there were no Western expeditions against them. But uh, anyway, Cantacuzene, who actually probably wasn't that favorable to reunion with the West, uh, but he did want to have good terms with them, he asked Cadones to um, uh, learn Latin. So Cadones naturally went across to Galetta and spoke to the Dominicans, and the Dominicans said, oh yeah, of course we'll teach you Latin. And uh, so they start teaching you in the basics, and then they say, well, I think it'd be a really good exercise, you know, if you were to try and translate into Greek Thomas Aquinas's Summa Contra Gentiles, and uh, and then if, and then that would that would really hone your Latin skills. And I assume the Dominicans knew what they were up to in being mischievous. But um, uh, Cantacuzene finishes this translation. I think it's on Christmas Day. Uh, is it Christmas Day? It's Christmas. It's about hundred years or, or something uh, before the fall of Constantinople. He fi um, he finishes this translation because he wrote at the end. You know, I finished this on Christmas Day, and uh, and he um, and he basically by the time he gets to the end of it, he's like wow, this guy really knows his stuff. And uh, he's obviously right. Um, uh, so so, so Cadones becomes a Catholic. And uh, so for a long time, the Byzantine Empire has a Catholic as its prime minister. And uh, and Cadones has a brother, this gets a bit weird, but Cadones has a brother called Prochorus Cadones, who's a monk at Mount Athos. Now Mount Athos is this uh, part of Greece uh, where there's uh, lots and lots of monasteries. And it, it's a big deal, it's like the it's like the spiritual center of uh, Greek orthodoxy, very prestigious. There are monks from lots of different orthodox countries there as well. So it's it's a big spiritual center for the other orthodox parts of the world as well, not just the Greeks. And um, and it, 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 it's achieving this kind of a sort of supremacy at this point of prestige. And um, a huge row blows up in this period around Mount Athos uh, to do with the Jesus prayer, which is one of the... Um, most important spiritual practices in the Byzantine tradition. Uh, it's this uh, this prayer, uh, very holy prayer, 
Um, uh, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the Living God, have mercy on me, a sinner. There are various versions of it, slightly shorter and shorter, slightly longer. Um, and um, there is a spirituality which stretches back uh, many, many, many centuries before this of uh, using the, 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 the frequent repetition of this prayer as a form of spiritual combat uh, to, in order to, to guard you against um, the influence of uh, the fallen angels while you're trying to pass through the different ages in spiritual life. And it's very, very important part of the tradition of the universal church. Um, but in the course of this period, um, uh, the monks of Mount Athos had developed a sort of a quite a complicated um, technique uh, for for continuously praying the Jesus prayer, involving controlling their breathing and adopting certain postures, and um, uh, and they started having these mystical experiences uh, where they they saw this this light. Now, uh, um, a uh, a cynic might suppose that they were seeing the light uh, because the um, they weren't breathing enough, um, but <laughs> um, but the. Um, but anyway, whatever the origin of it was, uh, the, the posture involved um, involved kind of bending over in a way that you were sort of looking at your navel when you began to see this light. And um, uh, there was this uh, a, gu a guy called Barlam of Calabria, who was a, an Orthodox monk and uh, from the south of Italy. And he actually, he wanted to, um, uh, he was in favor of opposing the uh, reconciliation with the West but he'd written a treatise uh, laying out his opposition and, and in, a, in a very scholastic style, uh, in the style of the new Western thinking, but in order to defend intransigent Eastern position. And uh, the, now the, uh, th the third party I mentioned in Byzantium was a group of uh, this, this growing tide of anti-intellectualism. Um, so one of one of uh, one of the ways in which people in Byzantium who were opposed to the reunion reacted when they realised that in fact the Latins were not contemptible but were were very very intellectually sophisticated nowadays was to just decide that 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 logic and philosophy were evil Latin things that that us holy Greeks should have nothing to do with right now this is a completely new phenomenon I mean that it, it's a it's a it's a complete one hundred and eighty turn from the previous position because they had been um they had been extremely uh, uh you know proud of how much more exalted their culture and their thought was than the latins so so this is a this is a, a radical departure but it has remained a feature of 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 the schismatic byzantine tradition uh, a kind of anti-intellectualism um and to a degree athos becomes the center of this and uh, and they they react negatively to Barlam's attempt to engage the Latins on their own ground. They don't think they're going to win that way. Barlam gets very offended. He infiltrates Mount Athos. He learns all about this special technique for praying the Jesus prayer. He thinks that it's a pseudo mystical experience, and uh, he starts to mock them as the belly button worshippers. And he, he he writes a sort of treatise making fun of them, and they get very very upset about it. And they 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 get their top. Uh, sort of uh, brain on Mount Athos, who's a guy called Gregory Palamas, uh, to write treatises um, defending their doctrine of these of these energies which they claim to be seeing uh, during these uh, special um, breathing exercises, and um, <clears throat> and he uh, and and so he, this caused him to develop a theory that the the energies and the essence of God are really distinct. And it's 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 a problem.
basically it's not it's not reconcilable i'm sure you could go and look, talk to lots of people who might try and persuade you that it was but it isn't reconcilable with uh with catholic doctrine on the simplicity of god which had in fact been solemnly defined also in the in the 13th century by pope benedict the 12th in a in a infallible book called benedictus deus and the reason why the the divine simplicity ended up being uh, defined and particularly the fact that the beatific vision involves actually seeing the essence of God because Palamas's position designed to defend the practices of the monks on Mount Athos was that you don't ever see the essence of God even the blessed in glory don't see the essence of God they see his energies which are really distinct from the divine essence and from each other um, and this is uh, this is very problematic from the perspective of Catholic theology and particularly clearly uh, enunciated by St. Thomas. Um, <clears throat> but the uh, the reason why it had been defined in the West um, by the Pope that um, that the, the blessed see the essence of God and not um, and not uh, anything else uh, is because of the errors of Pope uh, John the Twenty Second. Now uh, John the Twenty Second uh, is one of those few popes in history who have fallen into serious error. Um, arguably into heresy and he taught that between the death of uh, saints in this world or, or the, or the um, graduation from purgatory of those who are saved but were not saints um, uh, and the end of the world they don't see the beatific vision they don't see uh, Christ the, the divine nature in itself they see just Christ glorified humanity and uh, and a huge row kicked off about this and the the Paris theology faculty and the uh, Latin patriarch of Jerusalem denounced this as a heresy and um, eventually uh, John twenty second backed off and uh, renounced this position on his deathbed and then his successor Benedict XII issued this bull Benedictus Deus in which he uh, permanently infallibly defined the true doctrine of the church on this subject. Uh, so that means that the, the church had already come to a position uh, on this and it wasn't possible for there to be any discussion or, or compromise over this divine energies theory of Palamas. So that became a kind of proxy for, for those who were in favor or against reunion with the West and also became entangled in the civil war in Byzantium uh, between John V Palaiologos and his supporters and John VI Cantacuzene and his supporters. And uh, in the end, as I say, John V Palaiologos won, but then as a kind of gesture of goodwill to try and reunite Byzantium, he kind of conceded the victory to the people who supported Palamas's position. So that, that created a further difficulty, which remains a difficulty between Catholic theology and um, Orthodox theology. Uh, but uh, Prochorus Cadones, uh, monk of Mount Athos, was the brother of Demetrius Cadones, the prime minister who'd converted to Catholicism, and he was also a great opponent of Palamas's position. And he ended up being locked up uh, because he lost uh, the theological argument. Now, um, uh, uh, so this is all happening in the 14th century. So, so at this point, that that all prevents any any real reunion. Also, the fact that the popes are off in Avignon for ages. And then there's a schism between three different rival papal candidates also creates a problem. So uh, now the uh, the last of those three emperors that Cadones uh, served under, Manuel II um, Paleologos, he, um, 
he thinks he supposedly, according to a chronicler and this this a Byzantine chronicler, and this draws attention to the problem with uh, where how far some of these reunion attempts were disingenuous. He he's supposed to have advised his sons because two of his sons, in fact, succeeded him as emperor. They're the last two Byzantine emperors ever: um, uh, John the Eighth Palaeologos and um, uh, Constantine the Eleventh Palaeologos, who's the very last Byzantine emperor. But Manuel the Second advised his sons that. Um, uh, don't ever um, really have a reunion. Always talk about it, negotiate, string it out, have interminable arguments, and that will stop them attempting to invade uh, the Byzantine Empire. But don't ever actually have a reunion because, because of the obstinacy of the Greeks and the pride of the Latins, the reunion will never really work. It'll just make the questions that are more explicit and more difficult to ever gloss over. And it, it'll make the bitterness, it'll divide our own people among themselves. And um, and when it doesn't work, it'll mean that the problem is even more insoluble than it was beforehand. So in fact, interminable ecumenical dialogue is the best policy for the Byzantine <laughs> Empire, right? So, so as you can see, it, it's, it's tricky. But um, by this time, uh, the Turks have actually already started invading large areas of Europe. So, so Constantinople isn't 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 the sort of stopper anymore that's stopping the uh, the Turks getting into Europe. It's now a sort of beleaguered little cork bobbing in a sea of Turkish conquest. And uh, and and by the end of this period, really, there is a little bit of Greece detached physically from from Constantinople itself. But other than that, there's just Constantinople itself as a kind of city state. Um, completely isolated and surrounded by the Turks. So by the time you get to the reign of John VIII, Palaeologos, the penultimate Byzantine emperor, he is um, really desperate for reunion because they're the last hope of Byzantium. They keep being besieged and nearly falling. And of course, one big element, which is going to be a big role, big factor in the actual fall of Constantinople, is that um, the walls are no longer impenetrable because of the development of cannon. So, 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 cannon now really means that, that the walls are no longer the ultimate final safeguard, and and there is a serious danger that the city will fall. So, the last hope is to actually have a crusade, which is going to get rid of the Turks once and for all. Now, obviously, this is hundreds of years too late. If only Alexius Comnenus, back at the time of the first crusade, had not abandoned them at Antioch, and and his successors had had been able to harness the crusaders. And coordinate them with the Byzantine efforts, then perhaps this situation would never have developed. But now, suddenly, um, uh, with the the end staring them in the face, the Byzantine emperors get with Urban II's program of rescuing the Greeks <laughs> in order to reconcile them with the Latins. But as I say, it's very, very, very late in the day. Um, so, so, and, and as I've also was just saying, they they. There's been a problem with it getting anything done for a long time because of the chaos with the papacy in the West. So, um, but there are Byzantine ambassadors at the Council of Constance, and they're trying to, uh, you know, negotiate uh, and try and find a way of sorting out the schism. And so, the the conciliarism in one way is a problem because, as far as the Byzantines are concerned, they don't recognise any of the councils that we've had since uh, um, Nicaea too. Uh -huh. So, so they're not really interested in Western conciliarism in the sense that. Western conciliarism, Western conciliarism is based on a model of what a council is that is completely alien to the Greeks and they're not interested in it and yeah. Um, but on the other hand, the Greeks don't think that um, just 
shutting up and being given a piece of paper by the Pope and meekly signing it and, and submitting. They, that's not going to be a solution as far as they're concerned. They never obviously liked that way of doing things anyway, but it's now already been done. So as, Ma as Emmanuel II said, that every time you try and fix the, the schism and it doesn't work, it makes it harder to fix next time. So, so the I'm giving you a piece of paper to sign uh, to explain how very wrong you were and how very sorry you are technique has already been tried with Leon II and it didn't work. You know, it might, might be that it didn't work because uh, wicked Pope excommunicated Michael VIII, but nevertheless, it didn't work. Um, and so, um, so that's not going to work anymore. And you need something which is much more amenable to Byzantine, something they understand, and that's going to have to be a council. So it looks from one point of view as if this huge new emphasis on the importance of councils in the West is going to be part of the solution. But from another point of view, it isn't part of the solution because the Byzantines, uh, they think they can have, they know how to do councils, thank you very much. The problem with having, an, and, and councils involve everyone being Greek, and them happening in Constantinople and the emperor presiding over them. And the only problem with, with having council uh, is the fact that the Pope and the, and the Byzantines uh, think each other as schismatics and heretics. So, so that what they need is a council at which there is the Pope and everybody else, the other four of the five patriarchs as the Byzantines imagine things to be. <clears throat> so for them, what really, ironically, even though they think councils are what really matters, that means that as far as they're concerned, what really matters in regard to the West is the Pope. They're not interested in going to Switzerland um, and, uh, and having a council full of Latin theologians, right, who they don't like and who are doing complicated, weird arguments they don't understand. Uh, they, they want a council, everyone speaks Greek, um, and uh, there's lots of patriarchs, including the Pope and the Emperor. And they're not interested in in this Latin concept of a council, but um, nevertheless, uh, the conciliarists uh, have not clocked that. In fact, the enthusiasm of the Greeks for councils isn't really helpful for them after all. Um, and and the popes kind of have. They've kind of realised that actually this looks like it's super duper conciliar, but really it's going to be the way of outflanking our enemies in the West. So the popes, though normally they would have been kind of they have been nervous about reunion with the East since Leon II, because they've been thinking, well, they very much want it, but they've been thinking, you know, we can't undermine the definitive judgments of Leon II. We can't say, let's discuss all this again, because that would imply that Leon II wasn't definitive and we don't accept that. And they're going to have to accept all the other councils, you know, Lateran 1, 2, 3, 4, and Leon 1 and Bien and all that stuff. So, so we can't have them, we can't have them say that we want to discuss it all over again, because then that will mean that uh, that we're undermining uh, the papal doctrine as to what councils really are. So, um, so it. Uh, but then they realised that that it, because what the what the uh, Greeks are really interested in is the Pope to be part of a council that that they are a significant part of, that the Greeks are a significant part of, that's actually going to uh, outflank the Western conciliarists completely. So they start to become much more open to the idea of having a council as the solution to the problem. Now, at this point, the uh, have interminable ecumenical dialogue uh, and don't let it ever get anywhere strategy of Manuel II begins to kick in. And um, uh, and some of John VIII's advisors back in Constantinople are like, eh, I'm not sure we really want this to happen. And so they kind of say to, the, so they say to Martin V, who's very enthusiastic about all this, um, yeah, this is going to cost an awful lot of money, you know, um, uh, and, and we're not really sure if we could ever really do it. And really, it would have to be in Constantinople. And um, uh, and so, but then Master V and his successor, Eugenius IV, 
um, uh, they 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 sort of well you know um, uh, we, we're really they're so enthusiastic at this point about uh, about the reunion and the both because they they're sincerely enthusiastic. Um, but also because they uh, are really keen to outflank the conciliarists, um, uh, so they um, they think uh, they think they're really willing to go the extra mile at this point uh, in order to solve the problem. Um, so they um, so they say the Byzantines like it has to be in Constantinople and it's going to be really really expensive and we've got no money so you're going to have to pay for it. And so the Pope says, okay. That's fine. It can be in Constantinople, and however much it costs, we'll pay for it. And then the Byzantines are like, "Oh, oh, okay." Um, uh, and of course, partly this is you know not unconnected to the Templars because banking has become much more sophisticated in the West um, uh, thanks to the uh, innovations of the Templars, which have now been taken over by various Italian banking organisations, particularly focused on Florence. Uh, and so the popes can actually borrow the money in order in order to do this. Even though they don't actually really have the money at the moment, but they they can borrow the money in order to pull off this little procedure. So the Byzantines are like, oh, they just called our bluff, um, and they're actually kind of like, well, uh, um, uh, it's going to be quite difficult to do it in Constantinople because we're completely surrounded by the Turks and they keep nearly nearly laying siege to us, um, or actually laying siege to us. And at the same time, the um, the popes begin to realise that, that Constantinople might be a bit of a problem because they've been thinking that the council would involve lots of bishops there for kind of decorative purposes. And the papal legates would come with a big sheet of paper saying, we're very sorry, we agree with everything the Latins say, sign here. <laughs> and then everyone would sign it. And then the popes would sing a Te Deum and, and the legates would sing a Te Deum and go home and that would be end of that. And uh, they start to realise that actually, the, that even the, the Byzantine emperors, even insofar as they actually want the reunion, are like, trying to explain to the popes and say that this isn't going to work you know if we do that kind of thing it'll just end up like constantinople 4 you know it'll get repudiated a few years later and um and and it'll just make the schism even worse than it was before so we really do need to have a discussion um but it really is going to be hard because <coughs> the the popes think well we if we're going to have a discussion and the votes are going to be important we're going to need lots of latins there because otherwise it's going to be a mugging so uh and, and we'll just have to veto it and it'll make the whole thing worse and then you'll recognize it in ecumenical council we won't and it'll make it even worse so the so so in the end it's agreed that they're going to have a council in italy but on the coast and the pope's going to pay to bring loads and loads of byzantine delegates from constantinople to italy including the emperor himself in person and the patriarch constantinople in person um, uh, and so that's very, very expensive. Um, but the popes uh, are like, well, this this still is quite handy. So, so for political reasons in the West, so uh, Eugene uh, Eugene the Fourth's big fixer is this guy called Giuliano Cesarini, uh, which is easy to remember because it's kind of like Julius Caesar, not quite, but almost. Um, and uh, he's this cardinal, and he's he's quite an impressive guy. And he's he's been he gets him to do all sorts of things, like like trying to lead crusades against the Hussites in Bohemia and various mm -hmm. things like this. And he has a rather interesting end that we will get to. But um, but Cesarini uh, is 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 at various points the legate of um, of Eugene IV to the uh, the council in Basel. Now the council in Basel is absolutely bonkers, full of conciliarists. Um, uh, the English uh, fortunes in the Hundred Years' War are not going quite as well as they were when um, the Council of Constance happened. 
So the English are actually the most fanatically pro-papal. Uh, up until the Reformation, the English are really quite pro-papal, except when the popes are in Avignon. They're very keen on the papacy, uh, partly because England was converted by a very very aggressively papal mission sent by Gregory the Great. And of course, they don't like the Avignon popes because they're controlled by the French. So they always support the Roman popes through the Great Western Schism. So if you remember, the, the Council of Constance was divided into five nations and it voted in this weird way based on nations. And one of those nations was England, uh, which included a lot more than just England. But anyway, uh, it, it was uh, the bulk of the bishops were, were English bishops. But now, and, and at the time Constance was happening, Henry V was winning all these great victories in France and, and everyone was terrified of the English. And so they were able to throw their weight around. Whereas this isn't the case in Basel. So there isn't a there isn't an English voting block, and the English are uncomfortable at Basel. They don't like conciliarism, and um, uh, and so so the and so the uh, and in fact, uh, and as we also mentioned last time with Constance, uh, the concept of a council that the conciliarists hold is much more like a kind of parliament made up of loads of theologians and and abbots and other people who aren't actually bishops, um, and um, and so the. Uh, it's, it's very conciliarist and very difficult to control. So Eugene IV, having got this preliminary agreement with the Emperor John VIII, he's like, um, well, chaps, I'm terribly, so this has gone on for years now, these difficulties with Basel, and Basel has been pumping out conciliarist propaganda and getting more and more angry with the popes uh, for not cooperating. The popes have already tried to move the council to Italy on the grounds that it's... Um, that it's uh, not going to be very handy for the Byzantines to come to Switzerland, uh, but the uh, the conciliarists know they're in a good position geographically and politically in Switzerland. They don't want to budge, so eventually the Pope says, "No, sorry, that's it. We're moving it to uh, we're moving it to Ferrara." It's in 1438, and um, and that's the end of the matter. And all you bishops who really care about reunion with the Greeks the really important stuff and none of this self-indulgent conciliarist posturing you can come with us to the real council which is now going to be in Ferrara and uh, and I don't care what the rest of you do you're all wicked excommunicates um and uh, so 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 the the remainder of this so the bulk of this council but remember the vast bulk of them are not bishops so it's not they're not real proper conciliar delegates so the vast majority of this council well the bulk anyway stay in Basel but a good number of the actual bishops move to Ferrara and uh, so the so Basel becomes the kind of mecca of conciliarism and they think that they're kind of winning that they've got the whip hand um, and they they declare Eugene IV deposed and they uh, elect bizarrely the um, uh, they the Duke of Savoy Amadeus VIII Duke of Savoy who's like an amateur theologian uh, and he decides to 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 become consonant for the rest of his life and be ordained to the episcopate and uh, agree to be elected um, anti-pope Felix V. Um, uh, so, so, so they get their own anti-pope. But of course, what this has actually done, uh, they think that this is like, well, hey, we have our own pope now. We're the real council. This is it. But the, but, the, but the only thing that Eugene IV has been able to walk away with is, is the Byzantines and their interest in reunion. And uh, but in fact, uh, this is this is the ace card. This is the trump card because because um, uh, he can now ignore the conciliarists. Now, this is one of the things which uh, one of the advantages of schism that people often forget about, uh, which is that that if you've got a really sort of toxic party in the church and things get really bad and then there's a schism now that may be a problem but it also means you've got rid of an awful lot of annoying people um and uh, so so the council of ferrara as it now is 
is now much more docile to papal intentions and uh, and is fixed but that that might turn it into a sort of crazy ultramontane council that does lots of unhelpful things that make things worse but in fact um uh, uh that doesn't happen because they have to keep the greeks happy so they've got the byzantines there to keep them honest so the byzantines arrive um joseph the patriarch joseph ii of constantinople um uh the emperor john the eighth uh, and 700 Byzantine delegates arrive in Venice um, and make their way to Ferrara, and um, and they have uh, they have um, uh, procurators among them for the other Greek patriarchs. So they have representatives there of the patri the, the Byzantine patriarch of uh, Alexandria, Antioch, and Jerusalem as well. So, so who are who are authorized to act on their behalf. So, so it's it's a full-on ecumenical council according to everybody's interpretation of what an ecumenical council is, and this does provide a big problem for the Orthodox in explaining why they subsequently, after they went back into schism on the instructions of the Sultan, um, uh, that why they don't uh, why they don't accept this council because there's no account of what a council is really, other than because we don't agree with it, um, uh, um, which according to which Florence isn't a council, so they they. So they eventually gather at Ferrara and uh, and they start very serious uh, negotiations um, and but they can't just have plenary sessions of the council um, because uh, all of these well many of these questions in fact pretty much all of them have already been settled infallibly and definitively by the popes and the other councils that have been held in the west in the meantime and of course the catholic church can't repudiate those councils so instead what they do is they have these bilateral discussions which aren't formally uh, held inside the council then they're not a formal session of the council uh, they're bilateral discussions between the still schismatic byzantines and the representatives of the latins um and they initially happen in ferrara but then eventually uh, in uh, 1439 they have to move to florence because of another plague outbreak problem so uh, so they're actually, so the, so the plenary sessions of the council are held in the end in the duomo in florence very beautiful cathedral in florence it's a truly magnificent building i mean if you look at it uh, it was just being built at that time florence is terribly wealthy and powerful and culturally influential it's the beating heart of the renaissance at this point which is partly being fueled by the fact that that uh, greeks are fleeing constantinople in its in its beleaguered state which is uh, uh, helping uh, Westerners to get better Greek, um, which is which they're very keen to do because of the fact that they have this cultural cringe looking down on the medieval period, um, uh, which they're um, which has been developing since the Avignon Papacy and the Great Western Schism. But anyway, so so Florence is 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 the cultural and financial centre of uh, Christendom at this point, uh, and they're building this amazing new cathedral where they can hold the council. Now they have lots of discussions about various different things. They discuss purgatory. Um, which uh, is something which partly, again, paradoxically, because of the Crusades, has become um, much more clearly defined in the West because uh, the concept of indulgences, because indulgences become so central because they're so important to the to the concept of the Crusade, and therefore the theology of indulgences becomes much more sophisticated, and consequently the theology of purgatory becomes much more sophisticated. And this is a bewildering thing for the Byzantines because none of those things have happened where they are and therefore there's been a divergence in in theological development so there's a lot of discussion about purgatory some difficulties in that discussion they also they, they, they're trying to kind of put off the discussion on 
on the filioque for a bit in order to see if they can make progress elsewhere. They have discussions on um, the legitimacy of having added the word filioque to um, the creed without uh, having had an ecumenical council about it. And that, that's, that, that kind of, that gets in a way that question more than the filioque itself, um, which is really a theological problem invented by Photius back in the ninth century for his own sinister political purposes. Um, uh, the, the problem of having unilaterally added it, uh, which, is, which is what allowed Photius to exploit the filioque as, as a potential area of confusion for his own purposes, um, is, is really gets to the root of the question a bit more than other things. Um, and uh, there, there are some very significant figures there as uh, Isidore of Kiev, who is the, he's a Greek, but he's the uh, metropolitan of the Church of Rus. Um, uh, and uh, so, so the, the, the bishops of Kiev are actually the, the original leaders of the Church of, of what we now think of as the Ukraine, but it's Rus, the parent culture of both Ukraine and Belarus and uh, Russia. And uh, so he's actually effectively the Bishop of Moscow, but he's by title the Bishop of Kiev. It's much too confusing to explain, but um, but he is a Greek and he is um, uh, he's a very important figure there. And he's and he's able to procurate on behalf of other Greek bishops. And he's very keen on reunion. There's also Basarion of Nicaea, um, who's also procurating on behalf of, of others. Um, and very important. Uh, there's, there's a figure who isn't a bishop at this point, Gennadius Scholarios, uh, who we've already spoken about, who, who ends up being the um, schismatic patriarch of Constantinople after Constantinople falls. Um, but at this point, he's just a theologian and uh, he's a great admirer of St. Thomas. Um, uh, so he's very pro-union, uh, certainly persuadable at this point. The big opponent is a guy called Mark of Ephesus, who is very much against the reunion and is unwilling to agree to it in any circumstances. So when it gets down to the, the, the big question, or, I mean, in the end, they, the Byzantines can't maintain their position complaining about the adding of the filioque. I mean, uh, they, they, I suppose they could have maintained their opposition to the full sense of papal primacy, but they can't really maintain their argument that it was banned by the Council of Ephesus. So that they rely an awful lot on the, the, the third ecumenical council, the Council of Ephesus, which said that no one should add to the Nicene Creed. And that they sort of rely a lot on that, saying, oh, you added to the Nicene Creed, that's not allowed, dreadful, dreadful. And, um, but in fact, uh, if you remember all the way back to when we discussed the Council of Ephesus, when the Council of Ephesus happened, it was only the second ecumenical council because the first council of Constantinople was not at that time recognized as ecumenical. Now it's the first council of Constantinople which added uh, all the stuff after the words and the Holy and in the Holy Spirit in the Nicene Creed, all the stuff from that point onwards is added by the Council of Const First Council of Constantinople. But that wasn't recognized by the Council of Ephesus as an ecumenical council. So when they spoke about the Creed of Nicaea, they really meant the Creed of Nicaea. So they just meant uh, everything up to, that we would say a, a mass in the Roman rites up to the words and in the Holy Spirit, minus the words and his kingdom will have no end which was also added by Constantinople I. So uh, the, the Latins were able to point out to the Greeks that if you were really relying on this, then you'd have to say that the creed has to end with the words and the Holy Spirit, and you have been much more grievously violating the decree of the Council of Ephesus than the Latins ever have for a thousand years, basically. So, so, so that kind of ruins the Byzantine argument. Of course, uh, Chalcedon also said you shouldn't add to the creed, 
But of course, Chalcedon and Chalcedon did mean the creed, all of the creed that we now say, except the filioque. But um, but Chalcedon, um, but if Chalcedon, uh, if Ephesus is an ecumenical council, which of course the Byzantines believe, then that would mean Chalcedon was violating the decree of Ephesus. So if that decree could never be changed, or or if or if it really meant what they're saying, then that would mean that Chalcedon was heretical, which would mean we'd all have to become monophysites. So the Latins are able to tie the Byzantines in all sorts of logical knots over this until they kind of give up in exhaustion on that argument. And um, they're, they, they're willing to concede that the position on purgatory is, is close enough to what they hold to at least bracket the question uh, until they've debated the filioque and the painful primacy. So then they really get down to the filioque. Um, and um, uh, they get out all the books. So another thing which the Renaissance has been helping with a bit is, um, is getting together, you know, you know, the beginnings of critical editions of all the writings of all the fathers and all that kind of stuff, which is a good thing. I mean, you know, I'm not a great fan of the Renaissance, but it's a good thing because at this point, um, fake writings by Augustine and other fathers were going absolutely nuts. I was reading something written in the 15th century a few months ago, and it was full of quotes from St. Augustine. I'm like, there's no way Augustine said that. You know, and, and, and it's because no, because nobody Nobody really, I mean, it was just going mad, the 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 prof the proliferation of made-up things by the fathers. So so it was a good thing that a, a more of a sense of, of the a critical sense of what what the style and, and 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 form of Latin and kind of things were and, and a better sense of manuscripts was beginning to develop at this time because it would have become rather problematic otherwise. Because like some of these things like, and Augustine said, if you say the rosary three times on a Tuesday, you'll get a plenary indulgence. You're like, I mean, you really do get things like this. You're like, that's definitely not something Augustine said, right? <laughs> so uh, anyway, so the, um, uh, so they get out all the writings. There's lots of things by, you know, Gregory, uh, Gregory Nazianzen and Gregory Nisa, Gregory Nisa and Cyril of Alexandria and Athanasius and all sorts of stuff, which, uh, you know, they, they point towards, uh, the particularly Greg Nisa, Cyril of Alexandria, they they point towards uh, uh, you know the filioque and the idea that the that the spirit um, really is originated by the son as well as the father. Um, and there's a famous passage about about three torches uh, comparing Greg of Nisa comparing um, the lighting the father being like a one torch which lights a second torch and then the second torch is used to light the third torch and that's pretty clear um, and uh, what he's going on about there and um, so uh, but the so but of course Mark of Ephesus and the people who are less enthusiastic about the reunion they're able to say oh well you know he just means that's a description of how the Holy Spirit is sent in history or something it's not really a description of how the Holy Spirit um, proceeds in eternity and so they try their best to, to claim these passages don't really say what they pretty clearly do say. But I mean, you know, in their defence, it's not it's not written by Saint Anselm. It's not full of syllogisms and really brutal, um, obvious, um, clear logic. So it's not it's not some. Um, it, 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 it's more possible to claim that there's ambiguity there than than it wouldn't just require intellectual dishonesty to claim that there's ambiguity there. But the killer argument the Latins come up with is they say, look, you lot venerate St. Jerome and St. Ambrose and St. Augustine and St. Gregory the Great as saints. You know, they're on your calendar. They're fathers of the church. You accept that they are fathers. We all accept that we believe the faith of the fathers, right, which is once and for all given to the saints, right, um, as passed on through the fathers. 
and that they all believe the same thing. We don't think that the church is an interesting theological discussion club in which people have incompatible positions um, uh, and, and who knows who's right and we never will know. You know, we're not Anglicans. They don't say that because Anglicanism doesn't exist yet. But the, um, uh, so, they, so they say, so if you accept that all these people are saints and not heretics, well, let's look at what they had to say about the filioque. And they're really, really clear. And there's no way that anyone in their right mind could possibly say that they don't teach the filioque. Okay. So if you're going to insist on interpreting these passages that seem to teach the filioque and the Greek fathers as not really teaching the filioque, and you're even going to say that filioque is a heresy, then you're going to have to say that that all these fathers who you've you venerated for a thousand years are heretics. And you can't say that, right? So, and you're going to have to say that the faith of the fathers isn't really one. And unanimous, uh, and therefore, therefore, you know, the whole of our religion is false. Whether you, whether it's your version of it or our version of it, it would just be refuted by that interpretation. So, uh, Scholarios particularly is kind of like, oh gosh, yeah, I hadn't really thought that. Um, so basically, we we do have, unless we're going to take these people out of our calendar, we're going to have to say that this isn't a heresy, and that in fact, and then. It's, it's really difficult to not interpret the Greek fathers as saying the same thing in these passages which we've been trying to argue are ambiguous and therefore basically we're going to have to accept it. Now Mark of Ephesus as well basically accepts that this argument is unanswerable because his only answer to it is they're all forgeries. So he says, says every single thing cited here by the Latin fathers that asserts the filioque is an interpolation or an outright forgery. And uh, at this point Scholarius loses it with Mark of Ephesus and he's like kind of look, look, it's, it's not like a few sentences here and there. We're talking about entire treatises. I mean, you'd have to go through the entire, you, you know, the entire works of St. Augustine with, you know, 500 black marker pens in order to redact the filioque out of what he's saying. This is completely ridiculous. You can't say this. Marcus says, not hearing, can't hear you, blah, blah, blah. You know, um, Hagios uh, Theos, Hagios Thanatos, not hearing you. Uh, <laughs> and uh, um, so, uh, yeah, so basically everybody in the Byzantine party eventually are con is convinced apart from Mark of Ephesus. So this is a major coup, right? And people are very impressed at the time about how spirit-filled the whole thing is. And, and, you know, it's an amazing moment of grace. And uh, the Patriarch Constantinople, he agrees. Now, uh, he does unfortunately die shortly afterwards. He's very old and, you know, they've been having a difficult time. They don't like the food. They don't like their Italian food and they don't like the weather. And uh, it's been a long way away from home. And, uh, and they're all feeling a bit kind of pressured by that. But, um, and the anti-unionists later on try to really, really ham this up and say, oh, they, the Latins wouldn't give them food, you know, they'd only give them gelato and they were getting so bored of it, et cetera, et cetera. And they were forced to sign because they were so desperate to, you know, get back to their, to their favourite goat's cheese. And, and uh, I don't think, um, I don't think, uh, it's not plausible. It's clearly written in retrospect by people who subsequently repudiated the union, but had agreed to it at the time and wanted to explain the fact that they had done away. Um, uh, so so it's clearly not true. I mean, and, and, and all the documents which are more contemporary and, and it's clear that, that it was really a, a kind of a very moving moment um, when, when they kind of came to realize, um, came to realize uh, the, the unity of, of their position and uh, and the fact that they you know the, the, the faith of the Byzantines the faith of the Latins was ultimately the same. Um, so um, now I'm just trying to find uh, the actual documents. So on the finally 
on the uh, 6th of July, 1439, um, uh, the bull Letentur Celi, the heavens rejoice, uh, was agreed uh, between the Byzantine delegates and the Latins, uh, and they agreed both the Latin text and the Greek text, and um, uh, um, uh, Giuliano Cesarini, the papal legate, and uh, um, Vas uh, what's his name again? Uh, Basarion, Basarion's first name is again. Um, what's his first name? Oh, well, didn't write it down. But uh, Basarion, the Bishop of Nicaea, um, and um, uh, and Giuliano Cesarini, they agreed the text, and well, they'd all agreed the text, and it was it was proclaimed in Latin and Greek in the presence of the Emperor um, John uh, John the Eighth and uh, the Pope. Um, and all the other delegates, Latin and Greek, from the steps of the uh, Duomo in Florence. And, uh, and men wept, and the bells of Florence pealed like there was no tomorrow, and a public holiday was declared. And, uh, and, and throughout England, when they heard about it, the church bells were, were, um, were, were rung throughout the whole realm to celebrate the ending of the Great Schism. And... Um, uh, and the uh, the council the concilia hall was set up so that um, there was a throne for the pope and then two thrones one for the western emperor and one for the eastern emperor set up in the eastern the western emperor wasn't there but but it was very significant uh, because uh, if you remember all the way back to the coronation of Charlemagne the westerners hadn't claimed to be um, hadn't claimed to be reviving the Western Empire when Charlemagne was crowned in 800. They claimed that he was the legitimate successor of the blinded and murdered Constantine VI. So that after that, they'd always refer to the Byzantine Emperor as the Emperor of, of Constantinople or the Emperor or the King of the Greeks and things like this. And that was a cause of great contention. So this acceptance that there were two emperors and that they were both Emperor of the Romans was a very important moment as well. So this is, this is really very much what the Crusades had been intended to achieve. And um, and in in Letentocelli, which is absolutely amazing, Paul, um, uh, um, my co-author um, of my of uh, the book uh, Integralism, uh, Father Thomas Crean, he he pointed out once um, that it's it's the most infallibly defined document in the entire history of the Church because uh, all the other different delegations from the different separated churches that turned up over the course of the Council of Florence and were, were reconciled one way or the other. Every single one of them was required in the course in their document of reconciliation to also accept Letento Celi. So Letento Celi was re-promulgated for all the different other documents for all the other churches that were reconciled. So it's infallibly defined more times than any, any other document in the history of the church. Huh. Um, so he, um, uh, let me read you, if you will indulge me, the opening words of Lieutenant Cheney, um to give you a sense of it. Um, oh, hang on, that's, that's just the... Uh, edited highlights. Hang on, where's the? Uh, here we go. Um, let's see. Eugenius. Oh no, wrong one. Uh, oh well. Here we are. Definition. Eugenius, bishop, servant of the servants of God, for an everlasting memorial, with the agreement of our most dear son John Paleologos, illustrious emperor of the Romans. Right now, so that's incredibly important opening words, right? Because they called him the illustrious emperor emperor of the romans this is a great moment in the reconciliation of east and west and um now there is a slight they did give them a slight insurance po policy because it says in greek in it's just in the normal word in greek for emperor of the romans ta-da in latin it says imperator romeorum which is a slightly sneaky thing what they've done is they've taken the word the root in greek 
and put a Latin ending on it. So they don't say Imperator Romanorum, because they don't, which is the title which is used by the Holy Roman Emperor in the West. They don't want to get into a row with him for having, so they don't want people to accuse him of having translated the empire back to the East, but they do want to recognize the emperor as emperor of the Romans. So they do this slightly funny thing of using the Greek root of the Latin ending, but hey, I don't think the Greeks noticed, so it was all right. Um, and um, illustrious emperor of the Romans, of the deputies of our venerable brothers, the patriarchs and of other representatives of the Eastern churches to the following. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice for the wall that divided the Western and the Eastern church has been removed. Peace and harmony have returned since the cornerstone Christ who made both one has joined both sides with a very strong bond of love and peace, uniting and holding them together in a covenant of everlasting unity. After a long haze of grief and dark and unlovely gloom of long enduring strife, the radiance of hope for union has illuminated all. Let Mother Church also rejoice. So you can see it's kind of modeled on the exultet, the way it's written. For she now beholds her sons hitherto in disagreement, return to unity and peace. And she who hitherto wept at their separation now gives thanks to God with inexpressible joy at their truly marvelous harmony. Anyway, so it goes on. And, uh, but then it gets to, um, it talks about all the discussions and everything that they did in order to sort it all out. And um, it, uh, it makes a big thing in the part of the decree on the filioque about the fact that the, that when the Latins uh, said, that said, and the sun, Whereas the Greeks said through the Son, because they're very, they're able to find various Greek fathers who'd said this that the that the Spirit proceeds from the Father through the Son. There's a there's a line in uh, uh, Saint John Damascene where he says this, um, and uh, and and this helps to deal with the problem that we talked about previously about the fact that the term filioque in Greek uh, doesn't mean something unorthodox because of the different meaning of the word proceed. Uh, in Greek and Latin, and they get around this with this kind of, they say through, we say and, it all means the same thing. Yay, everything's fine. Um, and uh, and they, they, they assert uh, the, the doctrine of purgatory, they assert the fact that um, uh, we, um, uh, that those who die cleansed of all sin enter immediately into the vision of God. So that kind of gets around these problems about the divine energies, or they don't directly discuss the problems about the divine energies. In fact, John VIII realizes that that's highly neuralgic and he tells his delegates kind of like, don't talk about the energies. If anybody brings up the energies, don't mention it. Say you, need, that's <laughs> like, say you need the lavatory, say, oh, look, a badger, or um, or uh, pretend to have a fit, um, you know, anything. Is that John um, the 20th second? Don't talk about the energies. And of course, the reason why the unionists don't want to talk about the energies is because if they get the union settled, then the synod during which the, 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 they agreed to accept the, the weird energies theory in the East will be a dodgy synod that happened during the schism and won't really count anymore. Um, uh, but they don't have to say that. It'll just be sort of relativized and pushed off to the side and everyone can forget about it. Um, uh, whereas, whereas, whereas if they open it up, then all the people who've like been practicing with their belly buttons and it's very important for them personally will get very upset um, and it'll cause a huge row and it'll make the union much more difficult to resolve. But anyway, uh, they get at it indirectly through the, the section on purgatory. So they, says, they say, it is likewise defined that if those truly penitent have departed in the love of God before they have made satisfaction by the worthy fruits of penance for sins of commission and omission. The souls of these are cleansed after death by purgatorial punishments so that they may be released from punishments of this kind. The suffrages of the living faithful are an advantage to them 
namely the sacrifices of masses, prayers and almsgiving, and other works of piety which customarily performed by the faithful or other faithful according to the institutions of the church, and that the souls of those who after the reception of baptism have incurred no stain of sin at all, and also those who after the contraction of the sin of the stain of sin, whether in their bodies or when released from the same bodies, as we have said before, are purged, are immediately received into heaven and see clearly the one and triune God just as he is, yet according to the diversity of merits, one more perfectly than the other. And then, um, very annoying for all those universalists and people who are against limbo, it goes on to define, moreover, the souls of those who depart in actual mortal sin or in original sin only descend immediately into hell, but to undergo punishments of different kinds. Now, that sounds a bit brutal, uh, that those of ori in original sin only go immediately to hell. But you've got to realise the word hell sounds much scarier in English. Uh, so in Latin, it means the lower places, right? Mm -hmm. um, and, and it's a general term for the, the fate of anyone who doesn't have the beatific vision for eternity. It doesn't just mean Gehenna, the, 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 the region of positive torment. So, so in technical theological terms, limbo, which is a kind of state of perfect natural happiness, according to most accounts, um, is, uh, is, is an area of, um, is, is part of hell, um, in the sense that it's, it's an, it's, you never have the beatific vision. But it, that doesn't mean that it, it's a, a place of torment. Mm -hmm. right? um, in fact, if you, if you stopped um, most people in the street, in fact, almost anyone in the street, and asked them to describe heaven to you, they would proceed to describe limbo. They would say, oh, well, it's a happy, peaceful place full of rolling hills and fields and frolicking sheep, and, and everyone's really happy, and they, they you know, they live in... in That's a good point. <laughs> yeah. And basically what they're talking about is limbo. They almost never say the unmediated intellectual apprehension of the divine essence. <laughs> Which is what they ought to say. Which is what heaven actually is. What um, a man on the uh, street for that one to go into the grocery <laughs> store. <laughs> uh, so, so yeah. So they also say just before that they say that unleavened bread and leavened bread are both perfectly fine for the Eucharist. Stop getting wound up about it. Um, and then to the, to the the ultimate kind of uh, payoff for Eugene the Fourth and uh, disaster for the um, uh, the pseudo Council of Basel still spitting fire out over there in Switzerland, uh, they, they define, boom, boom, boom. Um, we likewise define that the Holy Apostolic See and the Roman Pontiff hold the primacy throughout the entire world, and that the Roman Pontiff himself is the successor of Blessed Peter, the chief of the apostles, and the true vicar of Christ, and that he is the head of the entire church, and the father and teacher of all Christians, and that full power was given to him in Blessed Peter by our Lord Jesus Christ to feed, rule, and govern the universal church, just as it is contained in the Acts of the Ecumenical Councils and in the Sacred Canons. Right, so that's... Um, that's that that that's disastrous for conciliarism, um, uh, but the conciliarists have, have, have allowed it to happen because they've all gone to Basel instead. So they're not there to say no, we don't agree. Um, uh, so so uh, so it's very handy for Eugenius the Fourth and his successors, and um, they also define the um, once again it's already defined the Lateran Four, the order of the patriarchs. So first Rome, then Constantinople, then Alexandria, then Antioch, then Jerusalem. Uh, and this is also should be borne in mind by people who say, oh, because Benedict XVI stopped using the title Patriarch of the West, that's no longer, he's repudiated or abolished the title. That's complete nonsense. It's solemnly defined by two, at least, ecumenical councils that the Pope is Patriarch of Rome. And it's in that capacity that he's the head of the, the Roman Rite. And, and many, most, of the, in fact, most of the ordinary administrative things that the Pope does 
uh, for Latin Christians. He isn't really doing as Pope in the sense of doing as universal pastor. He's doing them as Patriarch of Rome. And uh, I remember um, years ago, there was an article by uh, Aidan Nichols, English Dominican theologian in uh, New Blackfriars, the Dominican journal in England, um, about how if there were ever a reunion with the Orthodox, which I think might be slightly forlorn hope, but anyway, if there ever were a reunion with the Orthodox, then um, an awful lot of, of the papal curia would have to be changed from being papal stuff as it is now to being just patriarch of the West stuff. Mm -hmm. And only a few things like the Secretariat of State and the, and the CDF would remain kind of full on universal pastor departments, uh, if that makes any sense. Mm -hmm. But there we are. So um, so there it was, there's, there's, a, there's a sacristy of, I think it's it San Marco, I'm trying to remember, one of the Dominican churches in, in Florence, they, they built their sacristy at this time and they have stars on the ceiling. Uh, and they, they, they painted the stars to exactly correspond to the position that they held in the heavens at the moment that Le Tentor Celi was promulgated. <laughs> so it was, it was that big a deal, you know, this is this absolutely wonderful moment. And um, so, and, and that, uh, that reunion succeeded, uh, and people often, they, particularly the Orthodox, um, but also you'll get modernists who want to try and who are keen on ecumenism with the Orthodox because they think that the Orthodox theological positions are totally irreconcilable with defined doctrine in the West now. And so they think that by pushing reunion with the Orthodox, they can uh, set aside um, uh, lots of solemn definitions that they don't like. So so often people who are zealous for, for reconciliation with the Orthodox are people who, you know, really get it and are, um, you know, understand the fathers and, and and, and the, the fact that the faith is given once and for all and isn't a game for theologians. So off, often it's a sign of, of, of somebody with a really good outlook, but sometimes it's also a sign of, of, of somebody with a really bad outlook. They see it as a Trojan horse for undermining and, and watering down and getting rid of a lot of defined doctrine. So one has to be aware of that tendency as well. But in the, and, and, and people on that end of things, uh, and also the Orthodox, uh, um, those of them who are less inclined towards reunion are are strongly inclined to imply that you know um, the Florentine reunion was dead on arrival, but that really isn't true. Uh, it was controversial, and uh, it was a struggle uh, when they got back to Constantinople. Um, but uh, it was not dead on arrival, and the patriarchs and emperors um, uh, until the fall of the city were Catholics uh, in communion with the Holy See. And um, uh, and the, there was conflict. One of the problems, there were several problems that arose in in the in the, the final success of, of the Union of Florence. Uh, one of them was that um, uh, John VIII's wife died just just before he got back from the council. So he'd been away for ages, and he the, he was relatively you know euphoric. And then he got home to find that his wife had died. It was his third wife, and he still hadn't produced an heir. So he was, he was very, um, he was, and of course in Byzantine tradition, you're not supposed to have more than three wives. There was a big problem with that at the end of the ninth century, the Emperor Leo the Wise got into big trouble uh, because in Byzantine canon law, you're not supposed to have more than three wives. Um, I don't mean simultaneously, I mean sequentially. Um, and uh, and so, so he was, he was very, um, very depressed. And, uh, and the fact that there was significant opposition combined with his depression because of the death of his wife, really kind of knocked out John VIII. Uh, he wasn't, he didn't pursue uh, the, he did, but he did pursue, uh, you know, bedding in the reunion, but not as much as he might have done. 
And um, uh, the other problem was Mark of Ephesus, he kind of got out of Florence in case the Latins uh, started thinking about um, uh, starting any bonfires. Uh, he got he, he he never he never agreed. He was the only Byzantine delegate who didn't agree. But he got out of Florence before the final definition, and he got back to Constantinople, and he there became the big ringleader of opposition to the Florentine definition. And uh, he eventually persuaded Gennadius Scholarius to change his mind. Now, different people have different views of this. There's a there's a great Jesuit theologian who wrote a great work, uh, history of Gill, who wrote a great history of the Council of um, Theatre, well, historian uh, as well, um, who wrote a great history of the Council of Florence. And he kind of rather thinks that um, Gennadius Scholarius was was, um, uh, was inspired by vanity in a way that, that um, Mark of Ephesus always thought that Scholarius was the one who he might be able to win back from the reunion most of all and he was also the cleverest uh as i say he was a great thomist ironically and um uh and Ephes mark versus uh, sort of begged him on his deathbed to repudiate the union and become the leader of the anti-unionist party and unfortunately scholarius agreed to this and uh, so he he he's working to subvert the reunion for a long time and um but the real killer uh, to the reunion was the fall of Constantinople. So, so um, having attempted to uh, promulgate the reunion in uh, Rus and uh, um, met serious opposition from the uh, princes of Muscovy, who saw the reunion as an opportunity to declare sort of ecclesiastical independence from the patriarchs in Constantinople, the, the Russian rulers had become more and more sort of restless uh, and they always are. I mean, at the moment, they're not properly in communion with Constantinople. Um, but uh, they've become more and more restless with being told what to do by the Patriarch of Constantinople. And they even at one point, a little earlier than this, started to try and stop praying for the emperor in the liturgy and to get a stern letter of rebuke from the Patriarch of Constantinople, telling them that they're not allowed to not pray for the emperor, that the emperor's position is a central part of uh, the Christian worldview, even if he only rules uh, Constantinople at the moment. Um, uh, so the, the, the Muscovites have been restless and they use this as an opportunity to throw off Constantinople for the time being. Um, and, um, and Isidore of Kiev has to, he's unsuccessful in promulgating the reunion and he just manages to escape from Moscow. He gets back to Italy and he's sent back as papal legate by the Pope uh, to, to formally represent the Pope in Constantinople. And um, on the uh, 12th of December, um, 1452, uh, Isidore of Kiev, as papal legate, solemnly enacts and reads out the reunion in the Hagia Sophia. But as you'll notice, if you've been keeping your eye on dates, that's very, very close to the very end. And it's famously said that the anti-unionists uh, were so despairing of, of the possibility of overthrowing the union that they were they were praying for the Turks to succeed and capture Constantinople by this point. And they're supposed to have famously prayed better the turban of the Sultan than the tiara of the Pope. And um, now uh, one of the things which the, the Westerners had promised um, uh, was that if, if when the reunion was uh, was achieved, they would do they would send the mother of all crusades to try and rescue Constantinople. 
And again, sometimes people talk as if this didn't happen, but it really did happen. The king of Poland and Hungary, he was king of both Poland and Hungary, Władysław III, um, who was a, a great soldier, um, as well as uh, as well as uh, as, 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 two, as king twice over. He, um, together with the legate himself at the council, Giuliano Cesarini, they they formed a, a crusade to go and rescue Constantinople, and um, and uh, they. It was quite a significant army and the Turks were quite worried about it and they offered them quite sweeping terms, peace terms, in order to avoid them coming to rescue the Byzantines. And unfortunately, Władysław III accepted those terms, um, but then he was greatly reproached by Cesarini and others for having let down the Byzantines. And he repented of it and decided to go anyway. So he set off with his great crusading army and um, they had a deal with the Venetians. And I'm afraid the Venetians do come out as bad guys through a lot of this. They had a deal with the Venetians that the Venetians were going to block the straits between Europe and Asia to prevent the Turks from getting the bulk of their army across to Europe so that the crusading army could get down to Constantinople and kick the Turks out of Europe, basically, and save Constantinople. Um, and uh, the Venetians reneged on the deal, basically, because they calculated being sort of... Um, vicious, uh, ruthless capitalists that they are, the Venetians, they decided that they would, um, they would, uh, that, that in the end, that it's more likely the Turks would win. And if they did win, they were hoping to do a deal with them to carry on getting favorable trade terms around Constantinople. And therefore, they didn't want to upset them. So in the, so they reneged on their deal to block off the straits. So as a result, the Turks were able to get their army across and the and poor old Władysław III and Giuliano Cesarini found themselves uh, massively outnumbered when they got there. And at uh, the Battle of Varna in 1444, they were wiped out. Now the the Battle of Varna itself was quite close. There was a, a real chance that it might have they might have prevailed at one point, but unfortunately it didn't work out. And um, and uh, Cesarini and uh, Władysław III both died in the battle. And uh, and uh, there's some. Uh, dispute as to whether their bodies were ever recovered. I remember talking to an old lady in Warsaw once, um, uh, and, and I forgot for some reason we got on to Władysław III and the Battle of Varna. She's like 90-year-old old, old, old Polish lady, and she said, uh, and, and I said, oh yeah, and he died at the Battle of Varna. She said, if he did die, if he did die, because there's a legend in Poland, because they never got his body back, that he didn't die. <laughs> So uh, he has a very nice empty tomb in the Babel Cathedral in Krakow. <laughs> but um, uh, so, I mean, it was a, a great tragedy, no doubt assisted by Scholarios and Mark of Ephesus praying for the success of the Turks. Um, uh, the, um, and, uh, but it, you can't say that the Westerners didn't do, I mean, you know, the entire crusading movement, albeit, you know, it went very badly wrong in 1204, but the entire crusading movement was a was an attempt by the Westerners to save the Byzantines. And, and at the end there, one of the greatest kings in Europe, I mean, probably Władysław III's territory might have been the largest single block of territory ruled by anyone in Europe at the time. So you could argue he was the greatest king in Europe. Mm -hmm. um, uh, he gave his life to try and save the Byzantines. But as I say, unfortunately, it didn't work. And, um, and in 1453, uh, the also Byzantine Catholic Emperor, uh, Constantine XI, died um, uh, at the walls of Constantinople as it fell. Um, he took off his imperial regalia and charged into the fray, and also his body was never found. So the Greeks think that he's still alive. Actually, the, Pol the Poles legend isn't that he's still, that, what, 
while it's right the third is still alive is that he went off and lived out his life in portugal uh, rather bizarrely but anyway um but the the greek legend is that constantine the 11th um was transformed into marble and is still sleeping in a cave underneath um constantinople waiting to come and, and liberate the city and get the Hagia sophia back um uh, isidore of kiev uh, was caught up in the brutal and horrible sack of Constantinople by the Islamic armies, and he uh, he found a dead body and dressed it in his cardinal's robes. He swapped clothes with his dead body, and so they thought that he was dead. So they, they so the Turks stopped looking for him, and he, they sold the, they sold him, thinking he was just an ordinary random commoner, into uh, slavery. And then he managed to escape from slavery and get back to Italy, and he ended up as a cardinal in Rome and Bassarion also ended up as a cardinal in Rome um, uh, and uh, they both and, and the popes carried on appointing patriarchs of Constantinople um, uh, in, in, in absentia uh, and both Bassarion and Isidore at various points served as the Catholic patriarch of Constantinople um, but the Sultan also was uh, wanted his own patriarch Constantinople in Constantinople itself Mehmed II and uh, and he he found Scholarios in his cell praying for the success of the Turks and uh, he got him out and he said thanks for the prayers you can be patriarch of Constantinople so um, so in a certain sense um, in a in a sad way um, uh, Mehmed II one might say if one was being provocative is the founder of the Orthodox Church as it is now constituted in the sense that he created this new line of of, of Turkish backed patriarchs of Constantinople and of course he wanted the patriarch to be someone who rejected the reunion because he mm -hmm. didn't want any more crusades coming to try and rescue uh, rescue the Byzantines. So there we are. That's what created the um, that line. Now there are other other documents, uh, very important documents of the council, which were which were concluded after the Greeks had gone home um, uh, to for the reunion of the Copts and uh, the reunion of the Armenians. Uh, there's there's quite a few of them, but the two most important. Uh, they're all solemn definitions of Catholic doctrine. The two most important are Cantate Domino, um, which and, and Cantate, which was for the Copts, and Cantate Domino um, uh, is important for many reasons. But it's the one that contains the famous passage about the fact that uh, absolutely no one is saved outside the church. The one that freaks out um, enthusiastic ecumenists everywhere. Um, uh, and uh, let's have a look. Where is it? Uh, come here. There we are. The sacrosanct Roman Church, founded by the voice of our Lord and Saviour, firmly believes, professes, and preaches that. Um, where are we? Uh, I'll find the passage. That those not living within the Catholic Church, not only pagans but also Jews and heretics and schismatics, cannot become participants in eternal life but will depart into the everlasting fire which was prepared for the devil and his angels, unless before the end of life the same have been added to the flock, and that the unity of the ecclesiastical body is so strong that only to those remaining in it are the sacraments of the church of benefit for salvation, and do fastings, almsgiving, and other functions of piety and exercises of Christian service produce eternal reward, and that no one, whatever almsgiving he has practised, even if he has shed his blood for the name of Christ, can be saved, unless he has remained in the bosom and the unity of the Catholic Church. So that's pretty, you know, belt and braces. That, 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 um, 
that deals with everything. Um, and uh, it's uh, it's important to point out, though, that the word when it talks about being, unless they're united to the Catholic Church for their death, the word that they use is aggregate, not that the, not that they're a member of the Catholic Church. So um, that's quite important for discussions about the possibility of salvation by baptism of desire. So it doesn't exclude the more hardline position that you couldn't be saved unless you've been baptized with water but it certainly doesn't endorse it in that sense um uh, it's careful to use aggregate so that it could include uh, catechumens for example but obviously it doesn't uh, father brian harrison a great theologian um has written on this quite a lot um uh, it doesn't it clearly doesn't include people who who are um who don't profess christianity because it excludes jews pagans, heretics, and schismatics, but it might include those who are who are baptized Christians and are not personally guilty of heresy and schism. How far that extends is not clear. So so on the more narrow interpretation, you might say, well, it means people who've asked to be received. In, it's allowing for people who've asked to be received into the church but haven't yet been received. They're still under instruction and they get run over by a bus. Or, on the other hand, you might think that it, it also includes people who have been validly baptised by a Protestant minister, but just don't know any better. You know, he's only 12 years old, he believes in the Apostles' Creed, he doesn't know anything about the papal primacy one way or another, but that person's just a badly formed Catholic. Um, uh, so so they, might, they, might, they might even think that they're not a Catholic, if you ask them, but they don't really know what they're talking about. So, so I mean, there's that broader interpretation. Mm -hmm. But anyway, it's pretty clear about, you know, the fact that if you're a pagan or, or heretic or, or, or only embrace the old law, not the new, then it's not going to be any good for you. And uh, it also defines um, uh, other stuff relating to that, because there's an earlier, just a few paragraphs earlier in that document, Cantate Domino, uh, it defines that the sacraments of the old law, so circumcision, the Passover, Yom Kippur, all that kind of stuff, can't be practiced uh, without forfeiture of eternal salvation because they objectively signify that we are looking for the Christ who has not yet come. So that's why they were, that's why they allowed you to be saved. That's in the Old Testament. That's why they were means by which an act of justification could be facilitated. They didn't bring it about in the same way as the sacraments of the new law, but, but they facilitated an act of saving faith in the Old Testament because it was faith in Jesus who was indeed at that time the, the Messiah who had not yet come. But after the, the redemption is accomplished, our Lord dies on the cross, to perform those rites is to say we're still waiting for the Messiah, he hasn't come yet, and therefore it's an act of apostasy uh, from, the, um, from our Lord and Saviour and not an act of anticipated faith in him. And so that yeah, it, it's very strong on that point. Um, it says, um, where are we? Um, uh, sorry, through these. Um, uh, uh, yes, it says, therefore it, that's the Holy Roman Church, founded by the voice of our Lord and Saviour, commands all who glory in the name of Christian at whatever time, before or after baptism, to cease entirely from circumcision, since whether or not one places one's hope in it, it cannot be observed at all without the loss of eternal salvation. So that's that's pretty hard line and again is a source of great controversy nowadays people don't like it because it's inconvenient for their various ideas one way or another um uh, it also is very strong on baptism uh, of, of infants it says that uh, so so uh, you could say that Cantate Domino, together with Letento Celi, effectively define the doctrine of limbo, because Letento Celi says that those who die in original sin only um, are forever excluded from the beatific vision. 
And then Cantate Domino says, um, regarding children indeed, because danger of death, which can often take place when no help can be brought to them by another remedy than through the sacrament of baptism, with which they are snatched from the dominion of the devil and adopted uh, among the sons of God. And it says that baptism mustn't be deferred for 40 or 80 days, but must be done at the earliest possible time. And even by a layman or a laywoman, if a priest should be lacking. But the key thing is, it says the only remedy available to original sin for an infant is the sacrament of baptism, right? So so together with the fact that, that Latento Celi says that um, that only, uh, that, that uh, those who die in original sin only um, go, are forever excluded from the beatific vision, that you, click them together, you basically got limbo. So people say, often you'll hear people say limbo is just a theological opinion. And that's uh, true in an unbelievably technical sense that's really misleading, in the sense that some of the fathers and doctors hold that those who die in original sin only have the least possible degree of suffering that it's possible to have logically the least possible degree and some of them like St Thomas hold that they don't have any suffering of any kind whatsoever that they just live in a kind of earthly paradise so but really the difference there is earthly paradise with an itchy toe for three minutes every 10,000 years or just an earthly paradise so there's no there's not a lot of difference really between those two positions so you could say yeah it's a theological it's a theological opinion in the sense that you, that there's a tiny bit of room between two opinions, both of which the people who like to say it's theological opinion find completely unacceptable. Uh, so, so to all intents and purposes, Florence defined limbo. Now, some people think that uh, it might be possible that if your parents are Christians and they intend to baptize you and you weren't, um, and you weren't, you didn't miss baptism because they decided to wait a few months in order to pay for a larger party, but just because you died very unexpectedly, that you might receive vicarious baptism of desire. That was a, a theological opinion of the great Dominican theologian Cajetan, um, which the Council of Trent nearly condemned, but didn't, decided not to. Um, and uh, I think about that opinion, it could probably be said that some, it's not impossible that it's true but it's but it, it wouldn't mean that limbo didn't exist. It would still mean the vast majority of children who are not who die without baptism before the age of reason go to limbo. Um, but it would mean that a small number whose parents intended to baptize them and didn't delay but died unexpectedly might be able to have the better vision. But um, but we basically can't know that. So the catechism even says the current catechism, the Catholic Church says that that the church knows of no other way of assuring entry into eternal salvation than the sacrament of baptism right so so you could hold as a theological opinion that it might be true but we can't know you couldn't and, and therefore don't delay baptism because a key element of that opinion is that it only works if you don't delay baptism if you're culpable for delaying it then it wouldn't work um uh, but you can't hold that it's true as a theological opinion do you see what I mean? You can hold that it might be true as a theological opinion, but you don't have to. But you, can, but you can't hold that it is true as a theological opinion. A slightly subtle distinction. Hopefully it makes some sorts of sense. Um, uh, another very important document is Exaltate Deo, and for another one of the Eastern churches that was being reconciled. And uh, that contains lots. It, it lists all the different sacraments. Uh, in fact, um, uh, Cantate Domino is interesting, uh, should, before I move on to Exaltate Deo, in that it, 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 it gives the canon the canon of scripture had never been defined by an ecumenical council before. Um, it had been defined by a local council that had been infallibly ratified by the Pope. But that that was caused a sufficient degree of uncertainty that some people thought 
that it wasn't completely clear exactly which books are in scripture, but Florence defines the canon. Um, Exaltate Deo also defines the seven sacraments, says what they all are, uh, gives descriptions of them. There was a little bit of a controversy over the fact that it says that the handing over of the instruments is necessary for validity, and the handing over of the instruments is a part of the rite of ordination that only occurs in the Roman rite. So, so that's a bit odd, because um, uh, that obviously Florence wasn't intending to define that the, the orders of all the other rites have been invalid for ever and ever. Um, uh, so, um, Pius XII resolved that um, uh, question in uh, um, in his pontificate. I can't remember which year it was, but he said. Um, he, he issued an apostolic constitution which said that the if the if the handing of the instruments is necessary for validity, it's because they've been it's been made necessary for validity by ecclesiastical positive law in the Roman rite. Okay, it's not uh, necessary for validity by divine law. So there are other cases like that. So, for example, uh, marriage in the Roman rite nowadays requires um, uh, requires that you observe the, the ecclesiastical form you know you have to have the, the right kind of witnesses and you know you have to use the the right books and all that kind of stuff and some of the things which the church requires if you don't if you don't add them they become they render the marriage invalid some of the things which the church requires um just render it illicit but and some of the things are of divine law like you can't marry you know a descendant of yours or an ancestor of yours and that's of divine law and the church can't change that but some of the things like you can't marry your third cousin that's required by ecclesiastical positive law and it would it does invalidate but it is dispensable so Pius XII was saying that that definition uh, related to an invalidating impediment of ecclesiastical positive law in the Roman rite only so that was clarified by Pius XII. Um, uh, anything else? Oh yes, uh, um, Exaltate Deo also defines the Athanasian Creed. So the Athanasian Creed uh, which is traditionally attributed to St. Athanasius. There's a lot of controversy about that. It's, it's been sung uh, every week in the Ro traditional Roman liturgy um, up until the 20th century when a certain Italian liturgist had it removed. Um, and uh, um, in, in England, it was sung every day, in fact, at prime in, in the Roman liturgy until the Reformation. Uh, but it had never been solemnly defined by council until the Council of Florence. And of course, that's also important for these questions about salvation, because the opening line of the Athanasian Creed is, um, whosoever would be saved before all else, it is necessary that he profess the Catholic faith. Um, for unless we prof he profess the Catholic faith whole and entire with all his parts, he will most certainly perish everlastingly. And the Catholic faith is this, that we worship the one God in Trinity and the Trinity in unity, neither, neither dividing the substance nor confusing the persons. So it's very important in terms of, of, of things about the necessity of faith in Christ and the Trinity for salvation. Um, uh, so in general, in closing, the Council of Florence is probably one of the most important of all ecumenical councils. It, it, uh, it was, it contained more, you know, we talked at the very beginning about how the reason why, even though the Pope's infallible on his own, it's still a proper place, if possible, to do definitions is the, uh, is an ecumenical council. And the reason for that is that the guarantee of, um, of the whole deposit of faith being preserved intact is given to the entire body of the church of all the bishops not just not individually to the pope so the pope can err in his private theological opinions but he can't infallibly define falsehood 
But an ecumenical council can't infallibly define falsehood, but it has the additional guarantee that, that the deposit of faith will not perish from the whole body of the episcopate. So it's the proper place to do great discussions of the most important questions of the faith. And at the Council of Florence, every single one of the apostolic lines of dissent, uh, all the ritual churches, they were all present at the Council of Florence. So it was more fully and bountifully ecumenical than certainly any council since Nicaea, and in some ways um, than any council. And because they were having to reconcile a lot of churches which had been separated for a long time, uh, and they needed to make sure that we weren't you know, singing from different song sheets on many different questions, it covers in its documents an enormous, enormous scope of doctrine. There is more, there is more of Catholic doctrine represented in that in the documents of Florence than any other council taken singly. Um, of course, Vatican II says an awful lot and is very long, but it doesn't, uh, most of its documents, well, none of its documents are simply definitive. There are passages in it, we'll get to Vatican II, obviously, eventually, um, but there are passages in it which um, are definitive, but um, none of the documents are just huge definitions of Catholic doctrine, whereas whereas there are very large documents of Florence which can, which just contain the entire thing is infallibly defined. And um, uh, for example, also that the, um, that the uh, the persons of the Trinity differ only because they are opposed relations of, because of opposed relations of origin. Uh, that's very very important Catholic doctrine. It's only ever once solemnly defined. It's solemnly defined by Florence in God all is one except there be opposition of relation. That's also terribly important and important for understanding the filioque and other questions like that. So. I often say that if there was a nuclear war and you happened when you heard the sirens going off, you ha it happened that you were, say I was at my my work, as far as I know, there isn't a nuclear bunker underneath the seminary where I work. Um, and it probably wouldn't do much good if there was because the Russians are sending a lot of missiles to Colorado because- The airport uh, has one. <laughs> um, but say there was an amazing nuclear bunker that would, that would, would survive. And I only had three seconds or whatever. And I was in the library the two books which you need in order to reconstruct Catholic teaching more than the, uh, more than everything else apart from the Bible are the encyclicals of Leo XIII and the documents of the Council of Florence because they deal with everything, really. I mean, as far as anything deals with everything, Leo XIII and the Council of Florence really, really do deal with everything. And uh, so it's a terribly important council. Now, that, that book I mentioned on the Council of Florence by Gill um, has a rather depressing opening line, actually. He says... Um, he says, uh, I was looking at it the other day, um, the very first line of the book, uh, despite this great um, uh, um, uh, panegyric to the Council of Florence I was delivering, uh, Gill begins, the Council of Florence made the Reformation inevitable. That's the opening line of the, uh, but what he means by that, he's a great guy. So he's, he's not, um, he's, what he means by that basically is that it, it destroyed conciliarism, it, it buttressed the papacy, it drew a line under the chaos of the Avignon papacy and the Great Western Schism, and it, it put the popes back in a secure position, and it kind of got the church fixed in many ways. You know, the, the English were not wrong to ring the church bells up and down the land uh, um, for the Council of Florence. Um, 
but the, but sadly, uh, what what resulted from that is the popes were like, yeah, we don't have to worry anymore. Let's get into massive numbers of mistresses and illegitimate children and and neo pagan Renaissance art, right? So so they they well and truly took their eye off the ball um, as a result of the Council of Florence and didn't bother trying to reform the church anymore. Um, uh, but I mean, that isn't really that is a backhanded compliment to the Council of Florence, uh, not an insult to it. So yes, go forth and read and meditate upon the documents of the greatest ecumenical council that ever was. Awesome. Doc, as always, appreciate it. Uh, see you next time for the fifth council of Latin, right? Yes. Gosh. Oh. All right. Gosh, Have, thank you. Thank you, as always. <laughs> <laughs>